So I'm really excited to start this brand new series titled Love One Another. I've been thinking about this for quite some time and reading a lot, and I think that there's a lot for us to get out of it. Um, again, if you haven't taken the test, we created a web page um, on our website that is our web address, myfaithucc.org backslash love one another. And if you search Enneagram on Google, there's all sorts of free rundowns of an individual type. And again, I encourage you when you can to come to the small group gatherings. If you make all of them excellent, some of them great, one of them okay. We just want to reconnect with one another. So it's as much about connecting with each other as it is dealing with the content uh, that will be provided. Today is like an introduction to the series, and I want to answer this question, why do this series? Why spend an entire summer, there will be a couple breaks, but why spend so much time talking about this one topic? And to answer that question, I want to ask you a different question that could be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's an important question especially if you are a Jesus follower or considering maybe, you know, what does it mean to be one? And the question is this, how do you know someone is a Christian? If somebody was to ask you if you're a Christian or if your neighbor was a Christian, how would you be able to tell that that person is indeed a follower of Jesus Christ? One answer could be that you would point to their community, just say, hey, they go to a Christian church, they must be a Christian. Or perhaps you would point to a confession that they made. They say that Jesus Christ is Lord, or they prayed the sinner's prayer, or said the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed. Confessions are an important part of being a Christian. I believe that. Same with community. Or maybe it's their consecration, which is kind of a fancy word to say that they were set apart. So a way you could be consecrated is to be baptized. You could say somebody's a Christian because they've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, you could say that you're a Christian because you've taken communion. We're going to do that later today, and we spend a little bit of time uh, setting that, that bread apart or the little wafer that we all have today to say that this is special. It's, it's something important. All these, I think, are, are good indicators that somebody is a Christian, but none of them is what Jesus says makes you a Christian. And our goal as a church, our mission is to lead people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus says about what it means to be a Christian is very important to me and I would imagine to all of you. So we're going to go to the scripture, and if you were to open up the Bible and go about two-thirds of the way through, you would arrive at the New Testament, which is a story of Jesus in the early church. We have four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's in John where Jesus gives a very clear answer to the question, how do you know someone's a Christian? So we're going to be in John 13, and Jesus says this. This is how everyone will know that you're my disciples, when you love each other. To which you might be thinking, well, duh, like, isn't every world religion basically about loving each other? And I think there is some truth to that. But what Jesus said right before this makes it very clear that his definition of what it means to love each other is pretty narrow. He says this, just as I have loved you, so you, must also, so you also must love each other. In other words, Jesus is saying that a Christian is known by loving like Jesus. He's the standard for what it looks like to love. And when we love like Jesus, 
That's what sets us apart as his disciples. You could be part of a Christian community, but if you don't love like Jesus, you're not really following Jesus according to Jesus. You could be baptized in the name of Jesus. You could make all the confessions, say all the right things, but if you're not loving like Jesus loved, then Jesus would say, you're not really my disciple. And so I think it's important for us then to ask the question, how did Jesus love? And I'm going to give you a couple examples today. So we're going to start off in Mark. Mark's the shortest of all the Gospels. It was thought to be written first of them all. And in Mark 10, there's this story of a rich, young ruler, a guy that's got everything going on. He's got the money, he's got the health, and he's got the status. And he comes up to Jesus and he says this, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain or get eternal life? Because I got everything else, and so I want to get that too. And it must have been something about the way that he asked the question that kind of rubs Jesus the wrong way. Because Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. You know what the commandments say, he says to this rich young ruler. Don't cheat, don't murder, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and father. And this guy responds by saying, teacher, I've kept all of those since I was a little boy. And Jesus, I imagine, responds like this. You know, like that that look you make when somebody kind of you know, gives you a load of crap. Like, you know, like, really? And then Mark tells us, and this is why I share this story, that Jesus looked at him carefully, and he loved him. And when we love each other, we need to be careful. There needs to be some thought behind it. And so Mark's saying that Jesus, he's approached by this, he's got everything that you can get in this world, and he wants to get this last thing, eternal life. And Jesus, he's a little turned off by his approach, but then he looks at him carefully, and then he engages in love. He says, you're lacking one thing. And I bet you the guy got really excited when Jesus said this because he's like, hey, I've gotten everything else. If it's just one thing, I can get that too. And then Jesus tells him something he did not expect. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. You see, for this guy, life was all about getting. And he got the wealth. He got the status. And it's okay to take advantage of the opportunities that you have. But Jesus tells him that he needs to go give. Why? Because eternal life requires giving. The generosity of God, which this is the gospel, that God has given us a gift that we could never earn or purchase or get on our own. It's out of God's sheer generosity that we are invited into heaven with him. But if we don't have some generosity in our hearts, then we can't receive that gift. And if your life has been all about getting and behaving selfishly as perhaps this man's life was, the gift of God could be on the table and he can't take it. Now, this guy, do you think he responds well to this or badly? Up or down? Not so good. Right? He's confused by it. He's turned off by it. It hurts him, and he ends up walking away. And this story reveals to us that to love like Jesus, sometimes we got to engage in a hard truth. 
Because loving like Jesus requires the truth. And he looked at this guy carefully, and he saw what he needed. That his heart was so much about getting that he needed to engage in a whole lot of giving in order to receive the gift of eternal life. Now, let's go to a second story. This is in John chapter 8, and you got to love the Gospel of John. And this is one of my favorite stories because of how Jesus responds. But it starts off quite terrible. Jesus, he's teaching this crowd of people, and all of a sudden, these religious leaders drag this woman into the center of the circle where Jesus is teaching. And you can imagine they're screaming and yelling and all this commotion. He's sitting there like, you know, blessed are the weak, and, you know, give and you will receive. He's doing all the teachings, and then it's disrupted. And these religious leaders dragging this woman in, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. They saw her. We caught her right in the middle of it. In the law, Moses communicated to us to stone women like this. She needs to die right here, right now. That's what the law says, Jesus. What do you say? Now, they're being truthful. Because if we go back to Leviticus, everybody's favorite Old Testament book, it says here in Leviticus, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So these guys are saying the truth. Jesus, he's so brilliant. You know what he does? He bends down. That's right. He bends down on the ground. He starts drawing in the dirt. They're all pushing him for an answer. The emotional intensity is so high, and Jesus goes low. He starts drawing in the dirt. I think perhaps he's collecting himself. And then he offers probably one of the best responses to a conflict ever. Whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. I read a commentator once who said that it was probably the older members of the religious leaders that started to back away first because they've lived long enough to make another mistakes, to make enough mistakes to understand that, hey, whoa. But slowly but surely, all the people back away. And Jesus looks up and he's like, where have they gone? Nobody has condemned you? And she says, no, sir. And then he says this, neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, don't sin anymore. Now, the first guy, the rich young ruler who is doing pretty good, let's just give him some benefit of the doubt. I mean, he probably hasn't kept every law since he was a little boy, but maybe he's kept most of them. He gets a hard truth But this woman who is caught in the act of committing a sin, what does she get? She gets grace. There is some truth. Leave your life with sin, but it's a whole lot of grace. And this is inconsistent. This is maybe confusing, but it's not confusing if you've been reading through the Gospel of John carefully, because back in the first chapter of John, as as John is introducing Jesus to all of us, he says this remarkable thing about Jesus. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Not this, 
50% truth, 50% grace, but this. Full of truth and grace. So let me ask you a question. What would your life be like if you lived with 100% truth and 100% grace? In your relationships with other people, you were 100% truthful. You told them how you felt. You let them know exactly where they stood with you and how you're feeling and, and how you thought about things. And it was honest. And if people could expect one thing from you, it would be that you would be honest with them because you live with 100% truth in your relationships. But you know what? If you choose to do that, you better have 100% grace because people, they're going to let you down. People are going to come up short. Even the best people in your life, I hate to burst your bubble if you think otherwise, but people tend to let us down. People tend to lie sometimes. People tend to come up short because they're people, and we all struggle. What if you were to live 100% truth with yourself? if you're really able to face the things about yourself that keep creating trouble for you over and over again, the things that you often lie to yourself about. But you know why it's so hard to live with 100% truth in terms of our relationship with ourselves? We don't have 100% grace. But the gospel is that God sees you exactly where you are just as you are, all the issues you lie to others and lie to yourself about, all the things that you're struggling with that you want to keep hidden. God sees it all, and he still calls you beloved daughter, beloved son. It's 100% truth and 100% grace. And if we could live that way, we would have the humble confidence to begin to love like Jesus. So how did Jesus get this way? There's actually two accounts, I think, that give an explanation of how Jesus was able to live with 100% truth and 100% grace to be such a transformative, loving presence in this world. One of the accounts is in the Gospel of Luke, and the other one is in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, and it begins like this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And I think it was a literal wilderness, but I just want you to also keep kind of also in mind that it could be a metaphorical wilderness. What's a wilderness like? It's disorienting. Wilderness can be discomforting. It can be painful at times. So Jesus is led to this place outside of his comfort zone to be tempted, or the Greek word can also say tested. I think that's a way better way to think about this because you're never tempted to do something good, are you? But you can be tested to see if you are good, if you are able, right? You take a test to see how much of all that studying that you've actually internalized. And so Jesus, he's about to be tested by the Diablos. Anybody know what the Diablos is? The devil. But I didn't want to use the word devil here because many of us, myself included, when I hear devil, I think of a little character like that with a pitchfork and a tail because, you know, modern society and Western culture has turned the devil into the superstition. But the Bible's understanding of the devil is quite sophisticated. Diablos can also mean accuser or slanderer or adversary. The devil is not a name for somebody. It is a title 
It's the accuser. It's the slanderer. It's the adversary. And who's the slanderer against? Well, the word of God within you. And as we're going to see in this story, that the way that the slanderer works is through words. And you might not have voices like you need to go to a clinic and get some serious help, but you all have some voices, don't you? We have some voices in our head that cast doubt. Some voices in our head that are hopeless. And this is what the slanderer attempts to do to Jesus. So it says, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he, Jesus, was hungry, and the tempter or the tester came to him and said, and this is so brilliant, so we need to slow it down. It's a single statement, but we're going to break it up into two parts. It says, first, if you are the Son of God. Now, just the story before in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, he comes to this private conviction that somehow God is a God of grace and he needs to surrender himself to that grace. And so then he makes a public confession of that private conviction by showing up to the River Jordan where his cousin John, John the Baptist, is baptizing people. And he gets in line. And he gets up to the front, and John sees that it's Jesus and first refuses, but Jesus says, we need to go ahead with this. I need to have a baptism, a repentance. And Jesus goes under the water, and he comes back up. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And sometime go back and read this story. It's in Matthew chapter 3. And then read about all the things that Jesus did before his baptism to earn this statement. You know how many things that Matthew tells us about? Zero. Jesus hasn't done anything yet to earn this statement. Rather, it is a statement of God's love and unconditional grace, I think, for us all. In fact, by the end of his ministry, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to understand their relationship with God in this way. It is the thing that gives us the stability to be people of grace in this world, to love like Jesus loved. And so here he is, he gets the statement, and then he's driven out into the wilderness. So going back to chapter 4, and the devil says, if you're the son of God, the voice from heaven just said that you're beloved and well-pleased, but I'm questioning that here because I'm the accuser, I'm the slanderer. And if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Or perhaps to put it in an easier way to understand, the tempter is basically saying this. In light of your circumstances, how can you say God loves you? In light of your health issues, in light of your relational issues, in light of your financial issues, in light of whatever it might be that's your issues, how dare you say that God loves you? If God loved you, would you be hungry, Jesus? Jesus, his response is great. He says, it, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone. I mean, we need bread. We need food to live, right? Our circumstances are real. They do matter. He's not saying that this is some sort of just like we forget our material realities. But we don't just live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or to put it another way, what God said is greater than what circumstances say. In our circumstances, they can seem so total, so powerful. 
And the slanderer, the accuser, will get in your head and begin to say to you, look at your situation. It's hopeless. Look at your situation. God can't love you. Jesus says it's written. Next, the slanderer, he takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and it's in a vision. And again, I think that this account's not superstitious. It's sophisticated because you have visions. You can imagine in your mind being other places, can't you? And so the slanderer, he takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the top of the temple, and he says to them, if, again, sowing doubt, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, see the slanderer, he's crafty. Jesus quotes some scripture, so guess what the devil does? The devil can quote scripture too. I mean, has there ever been an instance where scripture has been quoted out of its context in a way that's hurt people? So here we go. He quotes from a psalm. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike the foot, your foot against a stone. In other words, God's going to protect you. You say you trust God. Jesus, he's so great, he says, it is also written, it's kind of like, you know, like a kung fu match of quoting scripture. He's like, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Hiya, got you back. Round two goes to Jesus. And so round three, the devil, he's, he's pulling out all the stops. He takes Jesus up to this high mountaintop. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus, by this point in time, he's beginning to understand that he is indeed a king. And so the, the slanderer says, hey, you're a king. Let me show you all the kingdoms. And then he tells them, all of this I will give you, he, the accuser, said, if you bow down and worship me. And then Jesus says probably the most helpful statement in this whole message because if you have a voice in your head occasionally that is casting doubt, if you have a voice in your head that is accusing you, slandering you, that seems to be an adversary to your well-being and the goodness in your relationships, it's saying you just go ahead and tell that person off. You go ahead and cheat in that way. You go ahead and undercut that person, whatever it might be. Here's what Jesus says that you can say also. Away from me, Satan. You see that? He names it for what it is. This is not a voice that is helpful. This is not something that's trying to build me up. I recognize you for what you are. That voice, that idea, that guilt, that accusation, that's not here to help me. That's here to break me down. So get away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this part of the story had me arrive at a statement that feels profound to me, but it seems kind of simple. So I'll give you the statement, and then let me explain what I mean. And that's this, that any voice that says it's God, that isn't God, is a false God. Any voice that says it's God, and when something says it's God, what does that mean? It's total. It's unmovable. There's no way around it. And as we move into some of the uh, types of the Enneagram, we're going to discover that there is something called a root sin, a key issue that every type has. And depending on your type, yours might be the same as mine because we're the same type or different, what have you. 
And there's going to be a temptation in there. The accuser's going to say, hey, this is just your type. This is your issue. You can't be changed. But the reason we're doing this is not just to be able to love one another, but to increase in knowledge because we can also, instead of always be dealing with that core sin, that root sin, we can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Every type has a fruit of the Spirit as well. And so here the accuser with Jesus, he's trying to cast out and sow seed and say, you're stuck. And Jesus says, get away from me. Because any voice is trying to tell you, this is fixed. There is no way around this. That voice is trying to be God, but it isn't God. It's a false God. With God, there's always possibility. And so the devil left him. And angels came and attended to him. He passed the test. Jesus took the test, and he put the accuser to rest. That voice that was in there slandering him, undermining his sense that he was a beloved child of God, that gets put to rest. Now, it comes back up later in the story when a friend of his, somebody we know as Peter, tries to tell him that he doesn't have to die and suffer and rise again. And what does Jesus say to Peter in that moment? Get behind me, Satan. He's not calling Peter Satan. He's recognizing that statement for what it is. And I believe that you too, whatever your particular issue is, it could be similar to mine, it could be different, because there are a lot of diversity in God's kingdom. But I believe that you can take the test and put the accuser to rest. So here's the application. Here's what I want everyone today in this moment, just with me now, make a commitment to do this week. Are you all ready? Step one, go to the wilderness. Step two, fast for 40 days. Don't eat anything for 40 days. And step three, defeat the devil. Shall we close in prayer? <laughs> or if you don't want to do that one, take the test. Now, We've just looked at Jesus' test. I'm well aware that he didn't take the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a tool to help us see something in ourselves that we'd rather not see. One of the writers that I'm reading, a man named Richard Rohr, an amazing Catholic priest, he says that the Enneagram is a window to the soul. And so I encourage you to find out what your type is and then learn about the types. And one of the things that you will discover when you learn about the types is something I already mentioned, which is your root sin. And this part's not fun. This is the part that feels like the wilderness. This is the part that feels like the fasting. This is the painful part. And until it comes to a place where it's almost humiliating to look at, you haven't gone deep enough. But on the other side of that is the fruit of of the spirit. So I'm a type three. It's an achiever. People like me like to be up in front with microphones. It's weird. <laughs> Honestly, when I first found out what I was, I was like, that doesn't sound like me. And then I began to read about it. Now, my root sin, I'm almost humiliated to mention. It's deceit. It's dishonesty. Because people like me 
We want to achieve so bad that we fear failure. And so we'll cover it up. And even a failure, we're pretty crafty at talking about it like it's still a success. And as we'll talk about in the weeks to come, my type is also part of this category that are the heart type, strong on feelings. But here's the irony that I've learned, is that threes especially have a really hard time connecting with their feelings. We shut it off to be successful. We're self-deceptive. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, for types like me especially, this is good for everyone, but especially for me and those of us that are threes, is honesty, transparency. It's to talk about our failures, to share about our weaknesses and our fears. And in several settings, I've heard feedback that when I'm being all strong and what have you and, and kind of you know, doing my best and shining my brightest, oftentimes actually that creates more distance between me and others. But when I'm vulnerable and willing to share about my personal struggles, that makes an opening. But I hate the idea of being deceitful. And it feels a bit humiliating right now to even speak of it. But it's equipped me to know what I need to do. And I think that it's bearing some fruit. And so for you, I encourage you to take the test, and there's a part of it that is painful, but on the other side of it, there is a fruit of the Spirit. And after you learn about the types, here's the third thing to do. And this one I'm serious about. Defeat the devil. Defeat the accuser within your head. The adversary who wants nothing other than to kill, steal, and destroy. Kill your joy, steal your potential away from you, destroy your relationships. There is something, you can call it what you want. The devil is probably way too superstitious for most of us. I totally get that. But this can be defeated. But it doesn't happen unless you take the test. The Enneagram is just a tool. The test is really, can we be 100% honest? Because in our 100% honesty, that's where we take hold of the 100% grace of God's goodness. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be with this gathering today. For those that are here in person, those that are watching online, And God, I ask that we would just have the courage of your spirit to take the test, to look at ourselves with 100% truth. For God, you give 100% grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.